This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Eva Morse was used to waking with the sun. She had to be at her job pretty early. She worked at the J.H. Dunning Corporation, a box-making factory. It was a menial job for menial pay, and Eva wasn't shy about her dissatisfaction with this job. It was hard to make ends meet. The morning of July 10th, 1985, was cool and breezy, and I'm sure Eva could smell the river as she walked to Route 12. Eva didn't have a car, she couldn't afford one, but she was quite adept at getting rides from one end of the valley to the other. She even had a reputation for being on time to work. This morning was no different. Eva hitched a ride from her home in Charlestown, New Hampshire, to her job at the factory in North Walpole, about a 15-minute drive south along Route 12. She made it to the Dunning factory at 7 a.m. Her co-worker met her outside before they went in to start their day but Eva complained that she wasn't feeling very well. She didn't punch her time card and instead made her excuses to management and left work. And those at work assumed Eva would head back north toward Charlestown to nurse whatever illness had come over her. On this journey, Eva was picked up by at least two drivers. She was dropped off at the Charlestown-Claremont line at about 7.45 a.m. And from there... She vanished from the shoulder of Route 12. The eerie part is, though, Eva lived back in Charlestown. So why was she heading north, miles past her own home? Did she have other plans that day? And if so, with whom? You are listening to Dark Valley, an investigative series from Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media. I'm your host, Jennifer Amell. This is episode five. Valley is possible because you listen. Be an advocate for these cases by rating and reviewing Dark Valley. It really does make a difference. Episodes are released weekly, but if you want to binge the first seven episodes, sign up for a subscription show on Apple Podcasts and get exclusive access to bonus content. Okay, so let's check in for a moment. So far, we've discussed four main cases. And all the names and details can get a little confusing. We began in 1988 with Jane's attack in the parking lot of that country store. Then we went back to 1978 
When Kathy Milligan was murdered in a wetland preserve, she was stabbed to death. Betsy Critchley was hitchhiking from Massachusetts back to Vermont in 1981 and disappeared from the highway. Her body was found in Unity, New Hampshire. Unfortunately, her cause of death was undetermined. And then in 1984, teenager Bernice Cordemanche was hitchhiking in Claremont. She was dropped off at the Main Street Bridge across from Leo's Market, and then she disappeared. Her body was found in the woods of Kellyville. A month later, still in 1984, Ellen Freed called her sister from a payphone at Leo's Market. Something made her nervous, and she got off the phone. Her body was found a year later along the banks of the Sugar River in Kellyville. We also discussed an early suspect in these cases, a man we're calling Jim. Jim suffered from severe mental illness, and Dr. Philpin, the original criminal profiler, suggested Jim would not be organized enough to carry out these murders or to cover them up. So now we're focusing in on the summer of 1985, after Bernice and Ellen disappeared, but before their bodies were recovered in 1986. This is when Eva Morse vanished while hitchhiking toward Claremont. She was only 27 years old. From the start, Eva's disappearance wasn't taken too seriously by the Charlestown police. In fact, there's virtually no early coverage at all in the local papers. Eva's older sister, Noreen, took out an ad in the Valley News, giving a physical description and scant details of the circumstances of her disappearance. It wasn't until five weeks after she went missing that police finally set up a roadblock near the factory where she worked. They showed her picture to each passing motorist, but it didn't yield any helpful information. I like riding. I never get to ride. <laughs> Jane, our friend Amanda, and myself are driving down Route 12. The factory that Eva worked at has since been closed, so it's hard to pinpoint exactly where she started her journey. Yeah, this is called uh, North Walpole right here that we're actually in. Very residential. Mm -hmm. So up here we're going to be going into Charlestown. And everything I read was she was last seen walking somewhere up here. I've since been able to dig up some more details about Eva's route that day. The J.H. Dunning Corporation was located on one Dunning Lane in North Walpole. Eva must have gotten a ride outside the factory and traveled about 12 minutes up Route 12A to Lover's Lane Road in Charlestown. It was here that a woman picked her up at about 7.30 a.m. When interviewed, this woman said Eva, quote, talked her ear off. She talked of her 10-year-old daughter, Carrie, how she hated her job at the factory, and how she couldn't make a living there. Eva also told this woman that she had a, quote, line on another job at a cabinet place in either Charlestown or Claremont. So Eva could have been heading toward a business called Crown Point Cabinetry just over the border of Charlestown into Claremont. Perhaps that's why Eva left the factory that morning. She wanted to inquire about this new job. In any case, the woman giving Eva a ride said she let her off at this area at about 7.45 a.m. 
This woman worked at a building with a clear view of Route 12. Once settled inside, she glanced out the window to see if Eva managed to get another ride. She was still there, thumb held out, on the north side of the road. Then, at approximately 8 a.m., she glanced out again, and Eva was gone, never to be seen alive again. Where was Eva going that morning? To potentially answer some of these questions, I tracked down Eva's older brother, Frank. Hello. Hello, is this Frank? Yes. Hi, Frank. This is Jennifer. Oh, hi. How are you? Let me uh, mute my TV here. (laughs) (laughs) So what got your interest up in this story? I explain a little bit about my project and that I'm working with Jane Borowski. He knows of her, of course. Frank actually reminds me of Jane's husband, Dennis. Their voices seem tempered by long winters, as if words had to be thawed to run free. Well, I'll give you any information I can tell you. Okay, my name is Frank Forrest, and Eva was my youngest sister. We have, uh, well, I should say, I had two half-sisters and, a half, and I have a half-brother. Eva and I have the same parents. She was a pain in my ass most of the time. But... <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, you know, she was my kid sister. She always wanted to hang out with me. She always wanted to be wherever I was, involved in whatever I was involved in, except, you know, I mean, being a girl, there was a lot of things she couldn't be, but I always had to drag her along when I went, like, after school, went, you know, around the neighborhood or whatever, she always had to be around. Just say, normally sibling stuff, you know? Yeah, well, we lost our mother at a very young age, so mother passed away a couple weeks before my 13th birthday, I believe it was. Yeah, Eva had a rough time with that, but we we were very close to my mother. Eva loved to be around people. She liked to be the center of attention whenever she could be. She struggled a little bit with uh, acceptance from people because she was kind of heavy, but she was uh, very precocious, very outgoing. She was... Just after Frank said that, the call dropped, so we hopped on Zoom, and thankfully the audio is a little better. I think she was in sixth grade when her mother passed. And she lost a lot for a couple of years. She was pretty quiet. But then she came back into herself. But she liked to, like I said, she liked to be around people. She liked to be involved in everything she could be. She tried to learn how to play the accordion. Yeah, she didn't get very far with it. She didn't stay with it. Funny story. My mother's side of the family is very musical. Pretty near any weekend, you could come to our house and you would find anywhere from three to 18 musicians playing in our living room. Singing uh, country music and uh, folk songs and stuff at the time. My father was a very hardworking, very uh, pretty much easygoing man. Always one of the first to go help somebody if they needed it. And uh, but he didn't have a lot of tolerance for me. <laughs> she used to tell uh, my, our, our friends about how my father would throw records out in the swamp out back of our house. I taught myself to play guitar, and I played by ear. So I'd listen to the same song over and over and over again until I learned it. And it would get him mad, so he'd throw the record out in the swamp. My teen years were pretty rough. <laughs> it's because you're into the rock and roll, Frank. Well, partially, but there was also incidences where, with Eva that caused a few 
periods of friction as well. She was sitting at a friend's house, rocking back and forth in a chair, rubbing her legs, telling us, telling me that her legs hurt. And she couldn't explain to me why the legs hurt. And uh, anyway, I left that house and ended up working that night. The next morning, I got home. I stopped at a local diner, and my oldest sister's first husband was a police officer at the time. He met me at the diner where I was getting a cup of coffee, and he says, asked me what had happened to my sister the night before, that she was rushed to the hospital. I said, I have no idea. He said, I'll go up to the house and find out. By this time, my father had remarried, and so I went in and asked my well, I call her stepmonster. What had been going on, she told me, you'd better sit down. I said, well, just tell me what's up. She said, your sister had a baby girl last night. Eva got pregnant when she was 17, and nobody knew that she was pregnant. She dropped several hints to us that we probably should have picked up on, but nobody did. One of the reasons that I was originally hesitant to speak with you, have you read or heard of a book called In the Shadow of Death? It's written by Philip Ginsberg, and... It is such a conglomerate mess of misinformation and lunacy that it just, it, he, he, it, the, the whole scenario around the book pissed me off. This guy was fixated on one facet of Eva's life that really had nothing to do with what happened to her. Another part of it was that he basically put the blame on somebody that they did not really suspect. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Eva was, I don't really know how to describe it, but pretty much bisexual. She preferred women. Yeah, oh, well, that was his fixation. He was all fixated that that was why or whatever that had happened to her. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. So Eva was bisexual, and in a small town in 1985, being openly gay was something that invited a lot of scrutiny and criticism. In fact, everything said about Eva in the wake of her disappearance is rather appalling. Instead of focusing on how good of a mother Eva was, her own half-sister, Noreen, characterized her as a dumpy woman who didn't care enough about herself to put on makeup or do her hair. I feel I also need to include a direct quote from the Charlestown Chief of Police, Robert Colburn. Not because I endorse his sentiments, but because I think it illustrates how problematic the portrayal of Eva was. Here's what the Chief of Police said, quote, She was a large girl. She was very pleasant, but she was not that attractive. She would not have enticed anybody with the way she dressed. Eva was a slob. Not a nice thing to say, but she was. So would have to take a sickie to pick her up and do anything to her. I don't even know where to begin, but the idea that a woman isn't pretty enough to be raped or murdered is possibly the most misogynistic, damaging sentiment I've heard expressed. 
I could go on, but I feel like it'll just be a whole lot of me yelling at a man nearly 40 years buried in the past. I will say that the chief's statement is pretty illuminating as to how Eva's investigation unfolded, erroneous and fueled by bigotry and bias. They blamed Eva for being overweight, and they blamed her suspicious disappearance on her homosexuality. The prevailing theory in the months after Eva's disappearance was that Eva was consorting with seedy individuals in gay bars and clandestine meeting spots. It gave police leeway to write her case off as a deviant person operating at the fringes of civil society. Eva's own sister even suggested that her ex-girlfriend was the one who caused her disappearance. And my older sister was convinced that it was one of her former lovers that had done it. Or, you know, that she'd had help or whatever. But it was, yeah, it's just nonsense. I love my older sister to death, but you couldn't tell her that that had nothing to do with it. Police chief in this town at that time, uh, I didn't care much for, I'll put it that way. And he didn't believe that anything untoward had happened. He believed that she had just abandoned her daughter and ran away. And that was something that anybody that knew her knew was not possible. She wouldn't have done that without making sure that her daughter was going to be good with somebody in the family and that sort of thing, you know. But she wouldn't have done it anyway. She fought too hard to keep the daughter. My father and stepmother took her to the hospital so she could have the baby, but they were telling her that, they, that she had to give it up, that they had the right to tell her that she had to give it up. My father and I ended up in a little blowout because I basically told him it was all crap. She could have the baby and keep it, but she was not not allowed to return home. She went and lived with friends and got hooked up, you know, with, with welfare. I think it probably tore him to hell. From the birth of the child, my father aged 10 years in a year, at least. And then again, when she, when Eva disappeared, it was the same thing. But there's one more thing I want to ask Frank. Does he know where Eva was headed that day she left work? She lived with a woman for several years, and there was a couple of separations. And they were in a separation at that time. My sister was working at a, uh, well, everybody calls it the box shop. Right? It was J.H. Dunning's down in North Walpole. And she had done work that morning, and she was ill. And she was also kind of worrying about this girl that she had been seeing. So she wanted to go home. Well, they were, I'm not sure how that story goes. Somebody said she was, she just wanted to go home. But somebody else said because she was said they were sending her home. And somebody that she worked with was supposed to give her away at home, but she didn't want her to lose time. So she says, I'll just go. And she went out and started hitchhiking. And that was the last time she was seen. She was last seen hitchhiking way past where she lived. So the suspicion is she was trying to go see this woman that she'd lived with. And do you know where this woman was living? In Claremont somewhere. I don't know exactly where. So Eva was seeing a woman named Deborah. Eva was possibly heading to Deborah's house to patch things up with her that morning. 
Deborah lived in Claremont. Deborah is actually quoted a few times in the paper. She spoke not of Eva's weight or of her appearance, but of Carrie, Eva's daughter. Quote, her daughter needed braces, said Deborah, and of course those are very expensive. Her daughter needed new eyeglasses almost constantly, and her daughter going to school, of course she needed new clothes every year. She just wanted her daughter to have a chance to have all the things that the other kids had. End quote. I found a couple records placing Deborah in West Claremont on Elm Street and others placing her on Chestnut Street, but I'm not sure which apartment Deborah lived in in 1985. Both locations, however, are significant. The Elm Street address would place Eva's destination where Leo's Market was situated, where Bernice Courdemanche and Ellen Freed were last seen. Chestnut Street, on the other hand, would place Eva's destination literally across the street from the apartment Ellen Freed was living in before her disappearance. Now, I would say that this gives more weight to the police's theory about Deborah having something to do with Eva's disappearance. However, Deborah is noted to have called around to hospitals on July 11th, the day after Eva went missing, so she must have been expecting her, and Eva never showed up. Police did canvass Deborah's neighborhood to see if anyone had seen Eva that day. No one had. Was Eva abducted from Route 12 or Route 11? Or... Did she actually make it into Claremont? I learned it from my... Well, that actually, the woman never taught me. She was a school teacher in the Charlestown schools. She saw me at this diner I was talking about where I went to get coffee. And she asked me if anybody had heard anything from Eva. And I said, Not, I, I don't know. I don't know what you mean. She said, well, supposedly she didn't come home work yesterday. Eva was rooming with a family friend. Her and her daughter were living with a family friend and they were, uh, she's the one that reported the missing. And like I said, the former police chief at the time, he believed that she had just taken off. So I don't think there was a whole lot of follow-up done right away. I spoke with a state trooper detective Oh, I want to say it was probably a month and a half after she disappeared. Now, she disappeared, and they believe that she died on July 10th. Eva breaks my heart. All these women do. But I feel a particular kinship to Eva. As a gay woman myself, I can't help but imagine how I would carry myself in rural New Hampshire in the 1980s. Would I be as brave as Eva? And I bet it would surprise Eva to be described as brave, as all she ever heard in her life was that she wasn't good enough, attractive enough, skinny enough, rich enough. I think that's why Frank said she always wanted attention and validation. No wonder. But Eva lived her truth. She kept her child despite pressure from her family. She kept her child until she was literally ripped away. She dared to love women. She got up every morning and hitchhiked to work so that her daughter could have a better life. 
And that, to me, is brave. On April 25, 1986, loggers in West Unity stumbled on a decomposing body. This body was even worse. By this point, the task force had been created to look into possible connections between all these cases in the valley. Eva's body was found in a wooded area, down a dirt road off of Unity Stage Road. This dirt road was described by a local as a parking area in the summer for people to enjoy the Sugar River. People would picnic on the banks and go swimming there. But if the name Unity Stage Road rings a bell, it's because Jane and I were here before. Eva was found less than 500 yards from Betsy Critchley's body, almost four years to the date apart. While back in the Unity Woods, I watch Jane wander off through the trees. I see her shoulders shake, and I know she's crying. I don't think about how scared she was. I know how scared I was. In trying to make sense of these cases, I've begun to couple the women. Bernice and Ellen disappeared from the same area of town. They were both nurses of a sort, and their bodies were found within a few miles of each other in Kellyville. Betsy and Eva were both hitchhiking, and found within even less distance, 500 yards. And they shared something else, too. Both women were part of the LGBTQ community, and if you recall, Betsy's brother Jay speculated that she was questioning her sexual identity. Eva was pretty much out. But whether or not this is enough connective tissue to draw patterns in what kind of victim the killer was looking for, I don't know. Dr. Henry Ryan of Augusta, Maine, performed the autopsy and determined that Eva had been stabbed to death. A spokesperson for the Attorney General later stated that Bernice Courdemanche and Eva Morse died from, quote, cutting as opposed to stabbing-type wounds. The fatal wounds on both women were to the neck. There's a man named Doug Rowe who lived about a mile uphill from where Eva and Betsy were found. I have to think it's somebody using this area to drop bodies, he said. I can't believe somebody from around here did it. It doesn't affect me that much being a male. It makes me a little nervous. It's made my friends a lot more nervous than me, actually. Kim Smith, another resident of Charlestown, said, quote, I talk to my friends, my mom. People are confused. You can't even walk out and around anymore. My mom called me up the other day and said, Kim, I know this sounds silly, but lock your door. By May of 1986, the Valley News printed a PSA warning parents not to allow their children to hitchhike, citing Bernice and Eva 
selectmen drafted a letter to residents, telling them not to hitchhike to and from school, because Unity still did not provide transportation to students. The Unity selectmen instated a log to, quote, keep track of all suspicious events in town, which seems entirely quaint and old world, and maybe could have even yielded information. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. You said this had been going on for a while. Do you mean the other women? Yeah, yeah, there was a few other women first. Okay, so it was in your mind that, you know, these women were disappearing. Did your mind go right to, you know, something horrible happened to Eva or were you holding out hope it was something else? No, pretty much it went right to something bad had happened. Right, and then how did you get the news that they had recovered her? My father called me after they had, well, actually after they had found what they suspected was her, but before they'd actually made the determination that it was her. Uh, it was painful, made me angry, somewhat disbelief because, you know, she was a pretty rugged girl. Somebody had to have done something to her quickly before she could have responded, basically, because she would have put up a hell of a fight. So you mentioned that, you know, this this whole thing just made you angry. I'm curious to know what you did with that anger. I just went through it. That's all. I didn't I didn't lash out, act out or anything like that. I had kids, small kids to take care of. So you just held it? Yeah, I just, you know, I mean, I spoke poorly about the police department, but other than that, that's about it. But at the time, New Hampshire didn't have its own medical examiner. So my father was hit with some surprise expenses and stuff that added to my anger a little bit because we had to have her body transported to the state of Maine to have an autopsy done. Wait, and you had to cover the cost of this? Yes. That's crazy. That's what I said. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Huh. Transport her there and transport her back. Eva had a fear of being, and this came from when my mother passed away. She was adamant that she was to be cremated. She didn't want worms and bugs and stuff. So, of course, she got the worms and bugs, and, but she was cremated at the, you know, after they released her. And uh, as far as I know, her urn is right on top of my mother's. It gave me an incredible fear of, of outliving my kids. Probably the worst thing I can think of any parent going through. 
Are you still angry? No, I don't think I'm much angry. I'm mostly disappointed. Disappointed that problems are easy, more easily swept under the rug than they are fixed. Uh, you know, this individual is a very sick person. You know, but we don't we don't know if it was somebody that she knew or if it was just completely totally random. You know, we've got all those questions, but the thing that really gets me and makes me the most disappointed is absolutely sure that somebody knew. Somebody knew that this person had these issues or had acted out or whatever and just never came forward with it. Absolutely certain that that's the case. Somebody had some inkling but just never came forward with it. You don't know if it's because they were fearful, afraid of the person or if they were afraid they may be wrong or whatever story is. Was there ever any suspect that came up that you thought was likely? Uh, they were very tight-lipped about who their suspects were. Of course, they asked me about people that had issues with her and so on, and I could think of a couple that did. One was a jealous boyfriend of one of the women that Eva was sometimes with. But not, not really. I didn't really think that he would have that in him, but, you know, I, I could be wrong, but I'm sure they investigated him because they didn't tell the authorities about him. But nothing ever came of it. Yeah. And do you think Eva's case is related to the other women in Claremont and beyond? Yes, but I'm not sure all of them are related. I do believe that this was a serial killer. I believe that it's somebody that traveled through this area on a regular basis. Whether the person drove a truck or was a salesman or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's just, I'm sure that that's what the case was. Several of the women were hitchhiking. I believe it was a crime of opportunity. And I believe that that person stopped making this, the trip through here at some point in time afterwards because they stopped. Eva's murder marks the end of those killings relegated to Claremont and the small towns surrounding it. With the exception of Jane, the Valley Killer did not strike again in New Hampshire, as far as we know. Eva's murder was a sort of odd end to this chapter of the Connecticut River Valley murders, and it was a beginning of sorts in terms of the investigation. Here's Jane. And I believe this is when they, um, they really realized that they have a possible serial killer on their hands. Right. I think that's what really woke them up and made them worried. Have you ever met with any of Eva Morse's relatives? I have not. I have um, very briefly uh, corresponded with her daughter through Facebook Messenger. Mm -hmm. um, Carrie? Yeah. Was it, I mean, what was that exchange like? I talked to her a little bit about a, um, this project and, um, you know, really wanted to see if she wanted to be involved in any way. And, I mean, it appears that she's, she's doing really well. Um, I imagine she's, you know, had a pretty rough time growing up without a mom. So, um, you know, she pretty much lost her world when Eva passed. Jane, Amanda, and myself decide to go visit Eva Morse's grave and pay our respects. 
we find the Pinecrest Cemetery tucked behind a residential street in Charlestown. The Pinecrest Cemetery looking for Eva Morse's grave. One each takes a row. And you'll see Morse right on the front. Big Morse right on the front. Yeah. You won't be able to miss it. Stepped over a fresh grave there. It's right here. Eva's headstone is large and polished to a high shine. A rhododendron in need of pruning grows beside the stone. Eva Marie Morse is buried next to her mother, Marie Eva Morse. They were reflections of each other in name. Jane is staring down at this headstone when Amanda clears her throat and says this. I also heard something else while you were talking, but I didn't want to interrupt you. But I think that you need to know this. The last thing she saw was not his face. The last thing she, she looked up. Mm. She would not. She would not. She would not. Right here. She was not. She wasn't going to give him that. You see, Jane's friend Amanda is a psychic. More importantly, Jane believes Amanda has psychic abilities. And you can react to that however you want. Part of the time that, it's funny that she, part of the time that I was by my car with that monster and when he, I first got out of the car, of course my windshield was already smashed. I was super angry. I was angry. I was scared, but I was angry and confused. and. When I get angry, I won't look at you directly. Mm -hmm. I will look away. I will not look at you. I, I will not look at your face. And um, so a majority of the time that he had me there and things evolved, I didn't look at him. My only vision of him clear vision and, and something that I will remember, this is the vision I remember of him, is when he was driving by when I was getting on my hands and knees after he stabbed me. That's the vision I see of him. I'm glad to know, I feel better to know that she didn't look at him, didn't give him the satisfaction I'm glad to know that. Thank you. Thank you for the message. <laughs> she gave me some peace today. Isn't that ironic? You know, it's funny with, with my attack. You know, of course I think about it. Or I used to think about it a lot. And then I kind of, um, kind of stopped kind of moved on with my life and, and tried to put it behind me. But I never thought, I never stopped thinking about them. All of them. I never stopped, I never stopped thinking about them. I thought about them more than I thought about my attack. I did. 
as odd as that sounds. I don't think that sounds odd at all. No, because they're the only ones who can understand what you went through, too. Exactly. Cardi B playing in the <laughs> Really ruining it. <laughs> can, can you put on a different song, please? Something more Havana Unana is not going to go with the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> Although the Valley Killer did not strike again in Claremont, the false border of the Connecticut River could not keep this man from Vermont. In the sleepy town of Saxton's River, he was about to strike again, leading to the most controversial case in the Connecticut River Valley murders. My guess is that she heard the outer door close. It was a blitz assault, no hesitation. Dark Valley is produced, written, and edited by me, Jennifer Amell. It's also made possible by executive producers with Crawlspace Media, Tim Polari and Lance Reinsterna. Follow us on social, at Dark Valley Show. Production assistants include Amanda Bedard and Marianne Stone-White. Show art by Pamela Robinson. Original theme song by Jennifer Paig. Please see the show notes for additional music credits, courtesy of Pixabay. And if you have a tip for any of these cases, please call the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit at 603-271-2663 or the Vermont State Police Major Crimes Unit at 802-244-8781. Or you can write to us at darkvalleyshow at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>